Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Bay Area Theater Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky with interviews conducted over the years and during the pandemic with playwrights, directors, actors, and producers. This Encore podcast was first posted on June 18, 2018. My guest is Octavio Solis, who is the playwright of Quixote Nuevo. Octavio Solis is the author of some 25 other plays, including Lydia Santos and Santos, Man of the Flesh. You did a voice for Coco? Yes, and I was a cultural consultant on the production with my two of the colleagues. We were involved in the guts of the film for over four or five years. We worked very closely on Coco. You also did a film called Prospect? Yes, I wrote and directed my own feature back in 2000. It was a big learning curve, too. I'd never done it before. Let's talk first about Quixote Nuevo. In the booklet for Cal Shakes, you said that it, it sort of started in the late 80s when you and your wife went to La Mancha in Spain, and that got you thinking about Don Quixote. You had not yes. read it at that point. No, my wife was reading it the entire drive. It was, a, it was a road trip across Spain, and she was reading the novel and remarking on how things had not changed in a long time. It still looked like medieval Spain in some parts of the country. But you still had not read it, and you let no. that go until, yes. what was it, 2007? About that time when finally the Oregon Shakespeare Festival called on me and asked me to see if I would adapt it for their outdoor stage. And I said, sure. I didn't know the task that was ahead of me because it meant reading the novel. And it's a massive novel, so I expected a very ponderous read. But I was surprised. I was surprised and delighted at how brisk it moved, how comical it was, how funny and how outright silly it was, and how it seemed to be the first meta-novel in which the narrator was always talking to the reader the entire time, sometimes even disavowing the stories that, that he was relating in the writing, exclaiming that he hadn't even written it. Did you read it in English, Spanish? Oh, I read it only in English. I read two separate translations, one by Thomas Smollett, which was the first really creditable English translation published around 1780, something like that. And another more recent one that was highly acclaimed by Edith Grossman that was published around 2000 or so. Had you seen Man of La Mancha? No, I hadn't seen it. I tried to see it and I realized this isn't the novel. It's of really no help because it's really not the novel. It's very different from the novel. So you, therefore, had kind of a freedom to go back to the original when you were working on the piece for Oregon Shakespeare. Yes. And that was set in... It was set in La Mancha in Spain. So it had a kind of Spanish cast to it. They had a theme that year at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival about being green and recycling. So they created something like 36 puppets out of recycled materials. The armor was made out of recycled beer cans and uh, other aluminum products. It was kind of fun to sort of see it put together in that way. That was the general theme of that production. And then you did other things. And out of the blue, did Shakespeare Dallas call you? Yes. They got a hold of a copy of the play, asked me to come in and uh, adapt it for them. 
and see if I would update it to the present day and adapt some of the language to a more contemporary Texas setting. And it turned out well. It turned out well, but I felt like it really wasn't finished yet. I wasn't entirely happy with my version at that time. So I knew there was more work to do, but I didn't think I'd get another shot at it. And so I decided to put the play in mothballs. But it didn't take long before I heard from Eric Ting at California Shakespeare Theater, who said that he wanted to do it, but would I be interested in exploring it further, examining my choices even deeper? So you came into this and suddenly you're going to rewrite the entire thing? Is that pretty much what happened? That's what happened, but that was not what I intended to do. (laughs) I didn't intend to do that. I intended to really just tweak it a little bit and come in and work with that. But I just kept hearing Eric's voice in my head saying, really interrogate your choices a little deeper. And I felt that I had that carte blanche from my director, K.J. Sanchez, as well. So I did, and it meant an immense amount of work for me because I essentially just unraveled this this story, this play that I had, a structure that I thought worked really well, and I took it apart. I put it back together, and it still has more or less the same general arc as my original play, but it ends differently, and it feels like a very different and more personal work because of that. Also, I felt like I finally seemed to liberate the, the play from, from the novel in the same way that Man of La Mancha was liberated from the novel. And I thought that was one of the biggest steps that was in my favor in, in breaking away from it and making it more American, making the work really more Latino American. How much time did you have to do all the rewrites? Oh, oh my, I had uh, something like, uh, we started rehearsals in May and uh, we finally got a sense of what we needed to do at, of what my marching orders were in early December when we had auditions. I had meetings with KJ and, and Eric at that time. So from December to May, I had like five months. And I tried to do it over all of December, and then I, I, I couldn't. I just couldn't find my way in. And then I str- struggled to really get on it in January. It was kind of an ordeal. I kind of beat myself up about it because I would go and I'd stare at the monitor for hours and then finally decide, well, let me just surf the net, do something else, watch a movie, anything but that, read a book, anything. I just couldn't couldn't get to it. And then I found my way in. Once I found my way in, then uh, the writing came. How'd you find your way in? By considering what was wrong with Quixote that what he had wasn't that he was just a quirky personality with a large imagination, but that he was a man in the early throes of Alzheimer's. And how did that hit you? Out of the blue then? No, it had been sort of planted uh, early on in our discussions, in our talks. And I have some uh, uh, recent family incidences where that had been the case. And so my firsthand experience with that and other people's experiences with that made me think about this character in the novel in a completely different way. And it makes sense because he's an old man. Right, right. And also uh, something else that was interesting that helped me in the rewrite of this is that in, in working on the play, I realized that the novel has no backstory. There is no backstory to Don Quixote. There's a backstory to the novel itself. The, the Cervantes, the narrator, goes to great lengths to say that he was walking in Valencia sometime and found the book in a flea market, in some market there, but it was all in, in Arabic, bought it, and it was a, a history by a historian, an Arab historian, uh, Ben Engeli, and had it translated, and that that's what the novel is. So he says, I didn't even write it. And, <laughs> and 
the way Man of La Mancha did it is they made it a play that Cervantes is telling people in a prison, in a prison. so they can avoid a backstory as well. I right. mean, that the backstory is Cervantes, not Don Quixote, not Don Quixote, but you have to go to Don Quixote and find a backstory. Yeah, because I have to give the character an arc. That's what the problem was with the prior two productions, is, and, and, and the actors struggled with it, and especially at OSF, the actor who played Don Quixote struggled with the work and came to me many times saying, help me get my, my feet into this character's shoes because I'm struggling. How does he grow? What does he learn from what happened? How is he different at the end than he is at the beginning? It was hard for me to say that, you know, actually he doesn't because he doesn't in the novel. He never changes. His mask never slips. He's always Quixote, the hero. And even when he's in his lowest point, when he's been beaten up, he still is unwavering in his delusion. But in the play, in Quixote Nuevo, occasionally he is aware he's a professor. Yes. Yes, he's aware that he's a professor. He's, he sees scenes from his childhood played out, from his past. So I was able, by doing this, to give Quixote a backstory. And once you have a backstory, he starts to get fleshed out. You start to understand him. And one of the things I learned from patients with Alzheimer's is everything that that, that person has squelched and locked inside himself, when they're free of those constraints due to the, the syndrome, they're almost the opposite. They act out in an opposite way. So I imagine that if Quixote takes on this heroic stance and is courageous and brave, it suggested to me that in his life, he was actually the opposite of that, meek and hidden away and, and keeping his love, his secrets all to himself. And that's where the Dulcinea part comes in because suddenly he's too shy to do anything. He's too shy and cowardly, actually, to, to go and, and marry her and bring her across the river because he just thinks that that's fraught with peril. Octavio Solis, there are other elements to Quixote Nuevo. Of course, I'm reminded a little bit of Coco because of the Calacas. So how did that come in? Was that there from the earlier versions? No, that's the newest thing. That was also my other way in, is creating this other dimension that Quixote is dealing with, that death is always shadowing him, always reminding him that he's on a clock, and also telling him that whatever he wants to do, he should do soon, because his memory is failing him, and soon he's either going to end up, as death himself says, in drooling retirement, or he's going to die the other character that's following him around through yes. the play. Yes, he's the other person that shadows him and watches him and is looking for the opportunity to take him. But in observing him, in seeing him act courageously, he starts to wonder if maybe there's something really honorable about this person and if maybe taking him before he goes into the Fountain Blue Center for Assisted Living, that maybe he does deserve to enact the one great courageous move of his life at the end of it. Now, when you're doing this, you're also maintaining the basic story of what Quixote does. I mean, some stuff has changed. Yes. He's not tilting at windmills. He's tilting at drones, but still. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, I had to, we had to find the equivalent uh, to that. I imagine that in 16th century Spain that the windmills were what passed for modern technology in that time, large, imposing almost anti-human, they look uh, monstrous. And driving through South Texas along that desert area near Big Bend, 
because I spent some time there in Marfa. I saw those for the first time, and they're very, they're kind of frightening. They're really kind of frightening and, and imposing. I kept thinking, how do they fit inside there? That There's not enough room for a per, even one person. How are these manned? And I realized they weren't. I no, found no. out later that they weren't. They attach sensors and, and cameras to them and uh, have them operate along the border like little airborne robots. As you're working on this, Trump gets elected. Well, you put it aside. He's already elected. And that changes a little bit what you'd worked on before as well because now what's been a story set on the border is suddenly not merely that, but it's a headline. Yes, that's something that happened in, in, in the transformation between the Dallas production and the one here. Is The Dallas production, was it was simply set in the border. I didn't really make any political hay of that. But the situation in the year since I did that play has considerably worsened along the border and has become dire and urgent and, and I can't I can't keep silent about it anymore. I, I don't consider myself a political writer, even though politics somehow ends up being at the heart of what I do. I don't consciously do it and I don't try to sort of flout my political credentials in the work. But now I, I feel that as an artist, I have a responsibility to take a stand on this in the most dramatic way I can. In the novel, there's a group of, uh, of prisoners that are headed on to, um, to the galleys that Quixote stops and interrogates and asks them what they're doing and what made them be imprisoned and condemned to the sentence. And at the end of which, after he hears all their stories, he releases them. He actually releases them. It's, it's both a, a great act, but it's also a, a foolhardy one because they attack him back. In this case, I have him talk to the migrant workers that are there and get to know them, commingle and break bread with them before he sees how they are treated, and then he does the same thing. There are many corollaries in the novel that I felt I could, I could put to use in my work. At the same time, you don't want to make it too contemporary because then it becomes just today's work and not even tomorrow's. Right. It can become dated. But I'm from El Paso. It's a city along the border, and it's always been that way. And we will always have these troubles along the border. Immigration is never going to become an issue that is going to be easily resolved. Congress keeps pitching the football forward to the next uh, session uh, because they really honestly don't have a solution for it, except by addressing it in the most draconian terms, uh, which is what our president is doing now with, uh, with that. Was there anything in the Dallas production that you suddenly went, I kind of caught this ahead of time? <laughs> My director really wanted to put a wall. We erected a real wall at the end of the play that he then attacks and breaks down, a real conscious wall, because my director, Gustavo Tambasio, has a very left-leaning political bent, and he says, we have to do this, because in Man of La Mancha, you know, that song, The Impossible Dream, that song was written at a time when Martin Luther King was giving his I Have a Dream speech, and so there's correlation with that. It was a political act to sing that song. The impossible dream. So you have a responsibility to deal with this idea of the wall. So I said, all right, we'll do it. But it seemed sort of tacked on rather than something that is established way at the beginning and becomes part of the journey, part of his mission, part of his grail. In the end, that's not the wall he finally addresses. It's more that wall that represents the great divide between life and death. 
but also between illusion and reality, between one culture and another culture, between one period and another period. So it becomes all these things. But I think my point about that wall is made. When you mention these ideas as metaphors in the context of the play, is that on your mind when you're working on it or only when you look at it afterward? Because I work so impulsively, I follow the characters and where they want to take me. And then I'll rewrite it. And sometimes the revisions, especially in this process, the revisions happened every day. I think this play has gone through at least one entire revision during rehearsal. And some pages have gone through two and some three. So there's been an immense amount of work on this in a very short, intense time. But I haven't given myself the time to pull back and see what have I done? What have I got? And now I see that there's some choices that happened, some choices I made that felt so right, but I couldn't back them up. I couldn't ground them in anything. And so the scaffolding shows, but I know it's the right choice, but I couldn't back them up. Now that we're running the play and I'm seeing it for the first time played out all the way through, I'm starting to realize, oh, oh, there's some things that, that feel so right now. And I know why. I know why. I need to go back on this play for another draft, sit down, and hammer out all those things that I think will make the scaffolding not only more solid, but also invisible. Like, I just realized, and I told my director this, and I told Emilio this, who's playing Quixote, that the letter he's been carrying around this whole time, he's been carrying a bunch of letters, but there's one special one he carries. I realized that it's a letter he wrote to himself when this condition first started happening, and it's so that he would not forget. He told himself the story of what happened, and he sealed it in an envelope to Dulcinea, but it's really for him, for him to read. And so I did that without realizing that that's what my intention was. Now I know the intention, so I need to go back and thread that, that idea through from the beginning. Can't do it on this production. But maybe there are some little things. There's some little right. things. There's another adjustment we made, just a single line change, where young Quijano tells his Dorotea character talking across the span of the river that he has to go away because he wants to study. He says, I've been reading novels and, and poetry. You gave me this love of language, and I want to I wanna study all that and be a teacher. Well, in hearing it last night, uh, we realized that that's a thing that stands out like a sore thumb to be a teacher. And we said, if we cut that out or change it to, I want to be a writer, then the idea that he, he has this passion that he's doing for her, that he wants to be an artist, a writer for her, but then ends up being a teacher because he lost her or something, some, something happened, some soul part of him drained out. Instead, he just gave up on that dream of writing and became a professor and glommed onto Cervantes and Cervantes' novel because it mirrored what was going on in his own life. One of the decisions you made is that it's not like this exists in a non-Quixote, non-Cervantes universe. This is our world. And what he's doing is he's playing out what he's already read, which is the story of Don Quixote. Right. And he's making the reality conform to the novel and to his own imagination, to what he imagines is there for him. So he sees a young boy getting whipped and he imagines it's a damsel. But that also happened in the novel. That's directly from the novel. Like in the novel, it was a boy who Quixote just immediately saw as, as a young maiden because he needed a maiden at the time. 
there are other elements here, and then I want to go a little into your own career. Act one is very funny. In the booklet for the play, you talk about how Cervantes is very funny, but you're also creating contemporary humor. Is it different from writing a comedy in the sense that you're you're still going for laughs? Yeah, I am. Even all the way through the play, there is that humor. I think the blanketing of Sancho happens in Act 2. And then Sancho has his own sort of mirage moment where he starts to fall into line, into step, and seeing the world through Quixote's eyes. But that's sort of the thing that ultimately I had to sort of make my peace with. And something I'm discovering, as I start to embrace who I am as, as a Latino, as a, as a Mexican-American, and I mean that, I don't take that lightly, it's something that I feel that now I am fully coming into the knowledge of what I am as someone of my culture. I think that because of that, the strict definitions and categories of genres and styles, and just they don't seem to serve me as much anymore. I was raised in Aristotle's poetics and the idea of what makes a Greek tragedy, what makes a comedy, what makes the epic. I was very seriously, deeply schooled in that, and I adhered to those things. But those are things of Western civilization that I put on. Now, as I start to look into my own culture a little deeper, I find that even though there may be some correlations to that, there are some other things that are operating in our Mexican myth and our Native American myths that are finding their way into this. That's why death is so present as these calacas. And once I introduce them into that world, the comedy and tragedy kind of genres start to get muddled and shift. So it feels somehow satisfying to me and appropriate that we start this thing as a comedy, but it goes somewhere else by the end of the play to a very different region. Something like Angels in America will do the same thing. I mean, it's part of, I think, the changes in theater now is that sometimes the funniest plays are not even, quote, comedies anymore. Right, yeah. But it's also uh, a symptom of a very strange time, of a very dark and weird and sardonic period that we're living in, in this post-truth era, which is why Quixote suddenly seems kind of more relevant. And one of the most interesting sort of experiences I had in working on this is how we created the blanketing of Sancho and how we spend all this time with Quixote. He's trying to convince us to see the world in this way. And and we resist it, we resist it. But then when the blanketing of Sancho happens, we gleefully want to sort of imagine this character being thrown up in the air when we know it's not him. But we accept it. We want to accept it. Otherwise... We're going to go, well, we're being jilted. This is not real. It's just a a dummy. It's not real. And yet there's something really satisfying about throwing ourselves, making that great leap into imagination. The first time he gets thrown up, you can't tell if it's him or not. But the second time, it's clearly the dummy. (laughs) That's that's true. They did such a good job in making it look like Juan, like our Sancho, even getting the hair right. That very first time, it kind of fooled us. And then the other two times, it's just <laughs> dummy, just <laughs> flopping around. And to imagine poor Sancho flopping around like it in the air and landing and getting kicked and tickled and all that is so delightful. Before we move on to the rest of your career, one final question. It's not a musical, but there's a lot of music in it. Was that there in the earlier productions as well? 
There was, especially in the OSF version, there was a lot more music because there was another subplot there that was based on one of the novellas in Don Quixote, one of the slim 50-page novellas. And it was a story of Cardenio and the story of Cardenio and Lucinda and, and this other couple, um, Dorotea and some other fellow, I forget his name, it had elements of operetta in it. It was done like a mini operetta on stage. So there was a lot more music in it. I always like to use music in my plays if I can because I think it's a uh, – no, I know. It's one of the best tools that we have in theater. It's a fantastic tool. And because I use heightened language so much in my work, I use, you know, very base profane language too. But also it can rise to its other level where it's poetic. And then it rises to this other level that it becomes song, that becomes song. Once you introduce that, the world opens up. And the walls tumble away so that almost anything is possible in, in, in that kind of world where characters can break into song. But I don't typically write musicals. That's a very strict kind of genre that has a very strict sort of set of rules. I just think of them as plays with music. I've done them ever since Man of the Flesh. The other part of that is that when things change and they become musical, we've got lighting. And you said there's a real problem that Cal shakes during rehearsal because you can only do it at night. Yeah. When it's really cold. I mean, there's a great spotlight that we can have for our matinees. It's called the sun. <laughs> but you can't put the sun in a fader. Uh, well, actually, sometimes the fog acts as a kind of fader. But you can't really control all those elements until the, the play falls, really moves into the realm of night. So it's kind of that it starts at, at this dusk hour where you can still see those beautiful hills in the background. It's just so idyllic and so beautiful. And it fits my work, both this one and the one I did prior the Pastors of Heaven. That backdrop has served both these plays really, really well. When you're writing something, are you thinking of where it would best be, outdoor or proscenium or thrust, or does that just not concern you because of the director's issue? It depends on the play. This play seems to call for more of a large arena sort of staging, but because I'm finally able to do it with nine actors playing all these multiple characters, even Sancho plays one of the calacas at one point. I feel that this is a work that we could do in, even in a, in a black box. You can do this in a really transformative way, very concentrated in a black box, recreating the world on that simple stage and doing a wipe every five minutes and changing it with lighting, with props, with little design elements coming in, but mainly with language. It's language that sets the scenery in, in my plays, usually. Octavio Solis, let's talk a little about your career. Now, you were born in El Paso. In high school, you joined a theater group and became an actor. What prompted that? It was a drama club at the high school. I didn't do it willfully. I was forced by my teacher to do it. I had to take an elective in my sophomore year. I wanted to take an art class. It was full up, and all the arty, farty sort of little classes that I really wanted to take were full, except drama, 101. So I had to sign up for that. I didn't even know much about it. But I sat there in the class, and we started reading, I believe, Midsummer Night's Dream. Maybe it was Romeo and Juliet. I don't remember. I think it was Midsummer Night's Dream. We sat reading it, and I noticed that people were really struggling with the language, these other students. And they were all like me. They were all, most of the class was, I'd say, 90% Mexican-American. But then when it got to me, something clicked. I knew how this sounded. I knew how the language needed to move. I knew that it, that it had a flow. 
And I could feel it. I could, I could count it out in my head. I could feel it in here, in my chest. When I was reading, I sensed the teacher kind of looking all the way to the back of the row, looking for me. She pegged me for something. When class was over, she said, we're doing the diary of Anne Frank. I want you to come to auditions. We're having a, our first auditions today. And I said, oh, I can't do it. I can't do it. Please, please come. She kept insisting. I said, okay. I didn't. I went home, ignored it, went home. But the next day of class, she says, you know, we're having callbacks. So I'd like you to come. Really, really, please come. I went, oh, all right. Again, I went home. I didn't do it. On the third day, she said, if you don't come, I'm going to fail you in this class. <laughs> <laughs> so I went. And it was revelatory. I got cast as Peter Van Damme. I didn't even know that world. I'd never met, as far as I know, I'd never met anyone who was Jewish. This was an, a new world for me. And to get even an understanding of what 1940s, World War II era Europe was like and what it was going through was so new to me. But to see all these students, peers of mine, sitting there and acting, even as they're reading, getting tears in their eyes, I was blown away by that. I had never seen that, and I'd never been transported to a place so instantly and so completely as at that very first reading. I don't think I've ever experienced that again. And I said, this is what I want to do. And I had been very shy. I used to have my hair really long and used to hide behind my hair. And that somehow, you know, putting on a mask play, of a role somehow gave me the freedom to kind of be myself. So I knew I wanted to be an actor. I knew the theater was going to be where I would work for the rest of my life. And then you went off to college for an MFA. And at that point, somewhere Still. along the line, what made you transit to playwriting? All seven years of school, I studied acting. But every year, I also took a playwriting course because I thought that a good actor should know how a playwright thinks, how a play is put together. We should all know that. And I had also had some pretensions to be a writer. I got some things in a literary magazine, both in high school and in college. But I never thought of him, of the two worlds kind of being blended together. I never thought of it. It wasn't until finally I went out in the real world and tried to get a job that I, I realized, you know, I'm not going to get cast unless I write plays for myself and direct myself. So I did that. I was teaching uh, at a high school, Arts Magnet High School for the Performing Arts in Dallas. And I cast some of my students. I cast some of my musician friends, some of my actor friends. And we did them in this little punk club in Dallas, Texas. And suddenly I was like somebody. And then people really wanted to, they were interested in me, casting directors, directors. But every time I asked them after the show, you know, so what do you think? What do you think of what we did in this little punk club? They say, wow, interesting play. I want to see some more of that. And your direction's kind of interesting too. Really, really got something out of these performers. I said, "Yeah, okay, but what about my acting?" And then they would say, "You're okay. It's good. It's 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 all right. It's okay." I heard that enough that I realized that really what people were interested in was my writing. So I thought, "Hmm, maybe there's something there to look at." And uh, eventually, I developed a more of a playwriting career than I did an acting career, and then I finally gave up the acting completely. What was your first professional theater that you saw? Do you remember? first professional theater production I ever saw was The Acting Company, John Houseman's Acting Company. I came to study at Trinity University in San Antonio. Really wonderful drama department. I saw the plays there. They were great, but there's still college productions. But as part of a roadshow, a traveling production, John Houseman's Acting Company came through and did two shows, one of King Lear, 
which was astonishing, and another one of Mother Courage and Her Children, which completely turned me on to Bertolt Brecht. And I studied Brecht uh, intensely for about three, four years. I think every serious theater student goes through their Brecht phase, and I went through mine. Well, that's when you kind of figure out, okay, fourth wall or not fourth wall. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and I like that I can go from one to the other, from more or less naturalistic works to works that seriously engage the viewer in a physical and, and literal way. So how did you go from Trinity and people going, hey, we like your work, to getting on a more national stage? That only came through the help of South Coast Repertory. Well, two things happened on both coasts almost simultaneously in the same year. I'd been producing works in theater garages and you know storefronts and clubs for about four or five years in Dallas. And then someone had submitted, without my permission, and forging my signature and all that information, sent my plays to the Hispanic Theater Lab at Intar in New York, which is a, a great writing lab headed by Maria Irene Fornes, uh, who's my mentor, and then also to the Hispanic Playwrights Project in South Coast Repertory, which at the time was headed by Jose Cruz Gonzalez at South Coast Rep. I got calls. I was accepted into both. They liked Man of the Flesh, which I had done in Dallas at a small company uh, in, in, in Dallas called Teatro Dallas. And then Irene called me also and said, hey, congratulations, you got into the program. We start next week. I said, next week? But it's Thanksgiving. Yeah, but you knew that the dates. I went, uh, I did? Okay, I got accepted? Yeah, you submitted your material. I did? All right, I'll be there. And I went there and was part of that group for almost eight months. It was to be like a two-month program, and we it just kept growing. She didn't want to part with us. It was fantastic. And then I had the reading of Man of the Flesh at South Coast Repertory, and it went like gangbusters. And SCR produced it the following year. And they're a major Lord Theater in, in this country. But what both those things did, both these, these two programs did, that was really remarkable, is they connected me to a network of other like-minded Latino writers, directors, actors, dramaturgs, designers, that I had hitherto not known about at all. I didn't even know about Luis Valdez at the time, which shows the failure of my education. That really started things rolling. In October, you have a book coming out called Retablos? Yes. Short stories. Yes, yes. They're like flesh fiction pieces. They vary from about four pages to uh, even half a page. Some of them are very, very short. When did you start writing those? I started writing those, I would say, about maybe eight years ago, like um, about... 2010, maybe even a little earlier. I started writing them because there's some things that happened in my growing up that I felt seemed so dreamlike that I thought, if I don't write them down and say that these really happened to me, I'm just going to consign it to like, well, it was a dream I had, but I know they happened. And they seemed so surreal that I said, I better write them down. And in the act of writing them down and rewriting them down, they started taking more fictional elements so that pretty soon... They just turn into stories, individual stories, based on, on events that happened in my life, but they have their own integrity. I'm not interested in autobiography. I'm more interested in telling a, a story that kind of reflects a life lived along the border in the 60s and 70s, when before the walls came up, before the, the border was militarized in, in this way, before El Paso finally seemed to, to become connected through 
technology to the rest of the world. It was such an isolated city, uh, and so was Juarez in Mexico, that we felt like we were our own nation. Something along the, that strip of, of Texas-Mexico, known as La Frontera, feels like its own country, 100 miles north and south of the border. Feels, to me, like it's still today, feels like its own country. Because the nearest city, American city to El Paso, large city, is probably Dallas or, or San Antonio because it's bigger than, than Albuquerque. Maybe Santa Fe is bigger than El Paso, but you know, maybe they're about the same size. Phoenix is too far away. There's nothing close. El Paso, and connected to Juarez, if you take away that river, it's one immense city. It's enormous. It's one of the largest cities in the world, I would say. And you can't build a wall between a city. I mean, that's like East and West Berlin. But they have. It's there. They started building it in the 80s. They started first by building a highway, a six-lane highway along the border so that anyone coming over would be in peril crossing this highway. But also, they did erect a large wall. And it's not like the wall you see in, in Tijuana and, and along the, near, near San Isidro by the coast. It's a serious, impenetrable, you can't see through it, kind of wall. Very tall, with large sensors, satellite dishes all around and cameras that is seriously patrolled. And yet, people find a way through. People find a way through. Around it, over it, under it. And just even by going over the over the bridge, they find a way. So in, in some respects, it remains one city. Yes, yes, it still remains one city. And smuggling, the idea of contraband, has ever been the part of this region. So things have been smuggled one direction, and then things were smuggled the other way. So guns were smuggled in during the Mexican Revolution. Pamphlets and newspapers, leftist newspapers, were smuggled into to Mexico through through Juarez, through El Paso, from, from El Paso to Juarez. And then things happened the other way. Farm goods and, uh, of course, narcotics. And then people have been smuggled through. So that's also what Retablos is about. It's stories about that, about rites of passage. They're kind of like real rites of passage that are seen in a very different light in this book because of my relationship to that border couple of quick questions and we're pretty much out of time. Prospect is a play that became a film. Were you approached to do that? Did you do it as an indie? I did it completely as an indie. I got into a few festivals. I showed it at the Roxy, the Dallas Video Festival in Dallas also screened it. Nothing's come of it since because to enter into festivals, you need to have completed it within this time frame. So it falls out of that now. It might be something we could probably put on uh, on YouTube or something like that. But I learned a lot about filmmaking and about writing for film, working on that. Both good lessons and lessons that I learned the hard way. But it was a great learning curve for me in learning how to do digital filmmaking, how to, how to edit. And that's where I found that I really could be a writer again is when I was editing. You could do further cuts, improve the writing by editing. And you could also improve an actor's performance through editing. I'll be working with uh, Peter Bratt on a film in the coming months. We have this idea that we're, that we're meeting to work on. He's a filmmaker who just released a documentary on Dolores Huerta. He's a neighbor of mine. He lives up in southern Oregon, just a couple miles from me. 
So Ben Bratt, him, and I are going to be working on a project. You also have a uh, another play coming out, Mother Road, next year at Oregon Shakespeare? Yes, sir, at the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. I'm so busy. Yeah, we start rehearsals for that in January. I've been receiving calls and conducting phone conferences over design right now. We're also looking at actors to cast it. It's Bill Rausch's swan song to the festival he's leaving, so he's going to direct my play. So I'm really honored by that. I'm Richard Walensky, and see you next Sunday for another edition of the Bay Area Theater Podcast. Mm-hmm.